and welcome to Glasgow City Heritage Trust podcast, If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk, a new series about the relationships, stories and shared memories that exist between Glasgow's historic buildings and people. Hello everyone, I'm Neil Murphy and welcome to If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk, a podcast by Glasgow City Heritage Trust about the stories and relationships between historic buildings and people in Glasgow. In this episode, we'll be talking about historic music venues and ballrooms as spaces of interactions and connection. So how many of your favourite memories are linked to a music venue? And how important are these spaces for our collective memory? Who knows about lost memories better than Nori Wilson from Lost Glasgow? Nori is a journalist and social historian with a lifelong fascination with his home city, Glasgow. Nori claims he first fell down the vintage photography rabbit hole while working on the Evening Times. Since then, following the launch of the Lost Glasgow Facebook site, he has gone on to stage a variety of exhibitions and talks on the subject, even hosting a very popular photographic exhibition at Glasgow City Heritage Trust's headquarters in 2017. Now, with almost a quarter of a million online followers, the Lost Glasgow Facebook page continues to tickle the city's collective memory, teasing out old stories, forgotten facts and lost legends, which are embedded in the photographic record of all Glasgow. Lost Glasgow's Facebook page is an exceptionally good example of the use of social media as a crowdsourcing means to collect memories and stories from people and ultimately add to the rich fabric of Glasgow's historic built environment. Because buildings are not just made of stone and brick, but also by people's experiences and lives. So this is particularly true for buildings and spaces focused on social interaction like ballrooms and music venues. So the period between the start of the First World War in 1914 and up to the mid-1950s is known as the golden age of social dancing in Glasgow. The city's dancing boom peaked during the Second World War when Glasgow had at least 80 dance halls. But by the mid-1950s, as the ballroom dancing declined in popularity, to adapt to the ever-changing times, a lot of the most popular ballrooms had to turn into music venues to survive. Nevertheless, they remained faithful to their identity as places of fun and social gathering. To name just a few of these places, we have the former Locarno on Socky Hall Street, later known as Tiffany's, and now the Genting Casino. The ballroom opened on the site of a former cinema, the Charing Cross Electric Theatre, in 1926 and for many years was considered one of Glasgow's top dancing venues. In the 1960s, the name was changed to Tiffany's as discotheques became more fashionable. Sadly, the last dance ended when the building was converted into a casino in the 1970s. Then there is the hugely famous Barrowlands Ballroom, opened on Christmas Eve 1934 by Maggie McIver, the Barra's Queen. As legend has it, the businesswoman decided to open the Barrowland Ballroom after the usual venue for her Christmas party for the hawkers of the Barrows and their families was fully booked. Sadly, the ballroom was destroyed by fire in 1956, but was rebuilt in 1960. And it is now one of the most iconic music venues in Europe, where the likes of Bowie, Oasis, U2, Simple Minds, Mogwai, Bob Dylan and Metallica have played gigs. And what about the buildings that did not survive, like the Deniston Palais, or the ones that still work as a space of interaction and fun where you can dance away your worries like the Grand Old Opry? So have you ever wondered how much of the buildings we inhabit, how much they shape our lives and our memories? So that is what we're going to discuss 
with this and other topics with Nori today. So welcome, Nori. Hello. Nice to be here. It's good to have you, Nori. <laughs> so first up in your questions that we have for you today. Do you think that the progressive loss of these spaces of interactions has changed the way we interact, date, and flirt? And if so, is this for the better or the worse? I, it's one of these sort of strange things because obviously with the, the rise of the internet and social media and online dating and all the rest of it, this sort of historic mating dating game has probably changed beyond all recognition. Uh, it certainly has from you know, my teenage years. There's something, I think, to me at least, fairly sterile about that because there's, there's nothing beats that sort of magic moment on a Friday or Saturday night when you you catch somebody's eye and there's that awkward sort of dancing around <laughs> each other, trying out your best moves and your best pattern, hoping that you'll land a lumber. <laughs> yes, very, very much. It is, yeah, yeah it, it's that human connection. Yeah, and it's, it's as old as time itself. Uh, the way that you... Yeah, as I say, you, you you see a pretty girl, and you a pretty girl sees a pretty boy, or a pretty boy sees a pretty boy, or a, yeah, a girl yeah. sees a girl, uh, and that sort of human connection, as I say, I mean that that goes right way back. Whether you're you're in a shebeen in Glasgow in the sixteen hundreds, listening to a piper and a drummer, or in the seventeen hundreds, and you're in all your finery in the old assembly rooms in Ingram Street. Yeah, it's all part of the the mating and dating and the the dance the dance to the music of time. <laughs> In, indeed, yeah, ab- absolutely. I'm thinking of two two kind of quotes that kind of make make me think about all of this. Is the the great American urbanist Andreas Duani, who's one of the, the the new urbanists who was over in Scotland in the 2000s. He's he's a really interesting character, and he used to say, and he used to totally scandalise his kind of audience at lectures about this, saying, you know, ultimately, what a great city's about. They're about people meeting each other, obviously, but they're also about sex. You know, it's people looking for a mate, and that's what this is all about. And that's what you know, dancing is all about. It was, um, uh, and this is the other great architect, um, Izzy Metstein of um, you know Gillespie Kid and Koya. Yes, he always used to joke about this about you know plans and sections when we were in architecture school, and he would say it's basically it's like dancing. It's the um, vertical expression of a horizontal intention, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. which was going, it was a great gag, but is absolutely spot on because that's exactly what all of these spaces were all about. You know, you were selling your wares basically. Exactly. So, okay, right. In, in your experience with Lost Glasgow, are people keen to share their memories about ballrooms? And can, can you give us a good example? Uh, people love talking about their dancing days. Uh, Mainly because they were the most vital days of their life. They were they were young, they were carefree, fresh of face, flight of foot, with no aches and pains, few responsibilities. Uh, and it's strange enough, it's it's not only older followers, you know, who do remember the Locarno and do remember the Albert Ballroom and do remember the plaza over on the south side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, as times have changed, you know, I have couples on Lost Glasgow who met and fell in love at the Arches or the Sub Club uh, and are now parents 
in their mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. their late forties and are now dropping off their own teenage children at venues around Glasgow. Uh, so what we think of, what I certainly think of as very recent history, is actually already history. I mean, I remember staggering down to the the opening night of the sub club, mm-hmm. thinking let's let's check out this new venue. But of course, it's not a new venue. I'm trying to remember what it was called just before the sub club. Uh, but the venue itself, yeah, in the basement of the yes, yeah, the classic, yeah. Yeah. the classic grand cinema. I mean, yeah, it, it was operating as a jazz club back in the 1950s, right? Uh, and in the 1970s, it was uh, the Jamaica Inn, and it was one of the the first proper discotheques in Glasgow Mm -hmm. and all the sort of early Radio Scotland DJs and Radio Clyde DJs used to do the the Friday and Saturday night sessions in there when at 11 o'clock or whatever it was, they would have to send out plates of spam and chips uh, to get by the licensing laws (laughs) so that they could stay open until one or two in the morning. (laughs) Absolutely. It makes me think of Denise Maynard's The Long Drop. And how she kind of describes this 1950s version of, of Glasgow in her book, um, which is just incredibly fascinating because it's, 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 like, it's like any great city. You kind of get layering up of history. And then these different you know, spaces, which now are very different, were previously occupied by other aspects of a society. And it's that kind of fascinating kind of layering up of history that you get in places like the subcub. It was it had a previous incarnation in that same yeah. space, which yeah. was you know occupied by a different generation who experienced it completely differently. And it's, it's, it's also worth remembering, though, most Glasgow dance, well, pretty well all Glasgow dance halls right through until the mid to late 60s were unlicensed. Mm-hmm. You, could, mm-hmm. you couldn't get a drink in them. You went to the pub... And then you went to the dancing, and if you were lucky, you tried to, if you're a girlfriend, you tried to get her to smuggle in a half bottle or a quarter bottle in her handbag, uh, because it was all, it was only soft drinks. Right, I had no like, idea. That's fascinating. Yeah. So why yeah. was that? Uh, it was the usual Glasgow Presbyterian licensing laws. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you can either have drink or you can have dancing, but never the twain shall meet. Right. Uh, Bizarre. Yeah, Glasgow's got this. Even though we love to dance, the sort of city fathers have always been slightly suspicious of people enjoying themselves. Yeah, yeah. And as I say, it goes back to that sort of Presbyterianism. Uh, I mean, if you go right back to the 1700s, and I'm, I'm trying to remember the chap's name, but the guy who set up the first proper dancing school in Glasgow, mm-hmm. you know, when you actually had to go and learn how to do a, a gavotte or a whatever the dances were of the day. Right. The, the only way he managed to get a license for his dancing school was on the condition, the council laid down the condition that there were to be no mixed classes. <laughs> Wh- women, <laughs> women would learn to dance with each other in the morning and men would dance with each other in the afternoon. And at no point were they ever, ever allowed to dance together in his, in his dancing school. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> How paranoid is that? That's mm-hmm. absolutely, that's just hilarious. Um, okay, well, go, turning back to what we were talking about with the sub club, and this is, you know, about the evolution of spaces. Um, and how things shifted from, you know, as, as fashions changed from, from ballrooms to music venues or something else. You know, 
does that ultimately reflect these kind of important changes in society? And and if that is the case, if this has always been happening in the past, what what does the future hold, particularly after you know the pandemic? Uh, the species and places that we dance and listen to music are always changing. They're always adapting to meet the needs of new audiences. Uh, and that that's part of the excitement. You know, it's a young person's game. And they always want to bring new ideas to the mm, table. Mm-hmm. They, they don't want to do the same things the way that their parents did. Yeah. Uh, and that's always refreshing. Uh, I remember being slightly horrified in my early clubbing days. My favourite destination of a, a Friday night was Maestro's in Scott Street up beside mm-hmm. the art school. Uh, and my mum who was at the art school in the 1940s, she said, she'd say, where are you going? I said, well, found this really good, trendy nightclub. It's full full of my tribe. Uh, Mum said, where is it? I said, it's uh, Scott Street at the side of the art school. And she said, oh, we used to go dancing in there in the 1940s. (laughs) I, I was absolutely horrified that this exciting underground venue that I'd discovered had been my mum's hangout 40 years previously. Uh, But I mean, particularly at the moment, obviously, I mean, COVID has had a a devastating effect on Glasgow's nighttime economy. Pubs, Mm. clubs, Mm -hmm. venues, promoters, musicians, DJs, and the whole army of technical crews who Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. never usually see, but who make it all happen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they've they've had a hell of a couple of years. Yeah, they really have. I was out having pints yesterday, my first visit to the pub in over a year with Bobby Bluebell from the Bluebells. Oh, wow. Uh, now, now now, of the fat cops. And they, I mean, they're desperate. They haven't played a gig properly in two years. And when when you live by live music, mm. yeah, I mean, I mean, so many folk have managed to take things online. Uh, I mean, over lockdown, I've been listening to and DJ Andrew Devine's monthly uh, sort of Divine at a Distance nights, uh, where each month is at a, a different theme, uh, but it's a, you know, a three-hour live set, all all seven-inch vinyl played over the internet. Right, right. And while that's brilliant, it's, it's me dance, dancing alone in my stocking soles in my living room. Absolutely. And it doesn't replace the excitement of being, you know, that, five minutes as you you walk up the stairs into a dark hall and you hear yeah. the music from a distance and then the doors open and there's the lights and there's the thump of the bass. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things I hope post-COVID that, you know, these kind of spaces, which have by necessity, sadly, because of the pandemic and the nature of the, 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 the virus, um, you know, that we haven't been able to utilise these spaces. I hope that, you know, what's happening and what you're describing there with the DJ taking to the internet instead, that they, they do come back and have a, have more of a role to play. And do you think do you think that's likely? Do you think places will recover? I, I hope they do. I mean, I think the bigger venues uh, will recover. And we're also seeing more of that sort of mixed indoor-outdoor spaces uh, I'm thinking of SWG3 mm-hmm, down beside mm-hmm. the Clydeside yep. Expressway. Yes. Where, where they've got an outdoor space, but partially covered because outdoor events in Glasgow, you know, weather dependent and quite often the Glasgow weather doesn't play ball with us. Uh, but you know, you've got things like the, the Queen's Park Arena staging outdoor events. 
Uh, you've got the bandstand in Kelvin Grove Park, where obviously you know, people are talking about you, know, you need uh, vent- ventilation. You know, what's better ventilated than a an yeah, outdoor abs- venue? Ab- absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I'm particularly worried about that at the moment because I've, I've been you know, hearing lots of bits and pieces about how vandalised it's getting. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's interesting that the Queen's Park bandstand has had things going on during mm-hmm. this time, just very small scale things, and it's been used for exercise classes yeah. and things like that. Whereas um, the the one in Kelvin Grove seems to have been really quiet, and that, mm-hmm. you know this tide of of graffiti is gra- gradually enveloping it, which is a real shame. Yeah, and I mean, there's, uh, there was an exciting announcement just uh, last week uh, about another new venue, very very similar to the SWG three mm-hmm. idea, uh, which is planned for what's what's now called Morrison Park. Uh, at Paul Medee, uh, and it's part of the former site of the Morris Furniture. Oh, that, I know we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. And they're already selling tickets for uh, a Flaming Lips gig in 2022, which should be its opening event. But again, it's one of these partially indoor, partially outdoor spaces mm, mm-hmm. uh, that they're planning. Uh, so it'll be like a, an East End equivalent to SWG3. Oh, that would be but, fantastic. But what what I really worry about, and the venues that I absolutely love, are the smaller venues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, rather than spend fifty pounds going to see someone at the Hydro, I'd rather ten times spend five pounds and go and see ten different new bands or new yeah, DJs quite, quite. in 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 Glasgow's lovely wee sweaty basement venues. Absolutely, yeah. It reminds me of that's the the story about Prince and his um, after concert. You know, he would just mm-hmm. keep the concert going, but in a small venue somewhere. Yeah. And he, it, I can't remember where he did that in Glasgow, but he did do it in Glasgow. He did it at the Mayfair, right? Okay, uh, which obviously is now the garage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think if it was the garage at that point as well. I can't remember if it was the garage or the Mayfair. Uh, I mean, the the garage is yeah you know, a spectacular case in point. Because mm. what, what most folk, the young team, get into the garage of a night, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. don't realise is that when they get to the top of that grand staircase and step into the venue, they're actually stepping into one of the last remaining Georgian villas in Sucky Hall Street. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and they'll have been dancing going on in those rooms since back in the 1700s. Yeah, there you go. Uh, three three centuries worth of dancing. It's yeah, amazing yeah. to think of, isn't it? Yeah, you imagine what the, the original owner of the villa would say if he, if ghosts do exist. Mm. Yeah, if, he, if he appeared and thought, geez, what, there's two and a half thousand <laughs> people in my house going absolutely mental. <laughs> What's that all about then? Exactly. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, do you think the success of Lasko's going, the kind, the kind of characteristic Glaswegian fondness for times gone by, have something to do with all the changes and demolition that Glasgow went through during the 1960s and 70s. Do you think there's something to do with that? There's some of that with the older followers on Lost mm-hmm. Glasgow who obviously remember the, the, the pre-motorway city, the city of trams uh, and all the rest of it. But we, we all, of course, imagine there was some kind of golden time, some sort of perfect good old days and pine for it. But of course, there never was that perfect time in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suspect I suspect most folk would probably think of it, you know, that 1950s post-war baby boom generation yeah. as being the, the perfect time in Glasgow. 
But Glasgow was going through tough times then as well. Yep, absolutely. Uh, you know, we sort of look at history through rose-tinted spectacles mm, mm. Uh, and we forget. We, it's the way memory works uh, and the way the brain works. Yeah. Uh, I, know, I know myself from various health scares years ago uh, and being in hospital, mm-hmm. I know that I was in pain Mm-hmm. But the brain doesn't let you remember pain. Yes, yeah, yeah. Whereas it does let you remember pleasure. So it's the same with these old memories. You know, people forget that. Yeah. You know, the city was, the air was thick with soot. Yeah, abs- uh, abs- absolutely. And how polluted Glasgow was. There was hard and times, and folk yep. did live with shared cludges and all the rest of it. Yes. Uh, to an extent, they look back, and it's what they're actually missing is not the city they're missing their own youth they're yeah. missing their own childhoods yes. and the people that were around them yeah you have you have to accept that change is going to happen i mean it is fascinating i mean that that aspect of glasgow does does fascinate me because glasgow strikes me as being tremendously unsentimental with itself you know the whole sections of the of the city were were bulldozed and that there were some protests about it but but not as much as in other places because people were actually were looking forward to a future so there's there's that kind of unsentimentality and hardness about it but then after mm. the event everybody gets dead sentimental about it and actually you're actually quite sentimental after all because they're all remembering what what it was that that they lost it's also that fact that quite often that sentimentality mm-hmm. comes from people who never had to live there yeah it's ve- it's very easy to look at look at a picture of the the urban density of the gorbals in the 1940s and say dreadful why did we lose this but quite often the people that are saying that are living in a nice semi-detached in the suburbs. And even if the old gorbals still existed, they would no more want to live there than fly to the moon. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. I'm, I'm acutely conscious. I mean, you know, particularly when I look at myself, you know, because mm-hmm. I do that and I see I see the spaces like the gorbals and I'm horrified by what got demolished. But I am conscious that, you know, the conditions there were really bad. And I recall... Um, there was a fantastic archaeological dig when the M74 um, extension or completion, depending on your point of view, was, yeah, was going through, egg, egg, exactly, when it was going through Eglinton Toll. And they dug up the site where um, Greek Thompson's, um, you know, uh, Queen's Park Queen's Terrace Park was. Yeah. And everything they discovered there. And I remember going down and seeing that, that um, dig and there being a woman there who had lived on that site beforehand. And she was talking about, she just turned up for the day to see what it was all like and the stuff that they were discovering. And she was talking about her memories of the place. And it was really fascinating because it, it gave you a whole different perspective on it about what a kind of mixed community was, what a strong community it was in terms of how everybody supported each other and that they had the dancing at the Plaza Ballroom, literally right next yeah. door, and how fantastic that was. But at the same time, they were acutely conscious that there were people living under the railway arches and raising families under the railway arches in absolutely appalling, you know, substandard conditions that nobody should have had to live in, but they didn't have any choice because there was nowhere else to live in Glasgow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Glasgow's always had that housing problem. Uh, I mean, there's various photographs from really just post-war uh, of returning soldiers, basically living with living with their families in condemned buildings in the Gorbals, 
with with when the the water and the gas had already and the electricity had all been cut off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is late forties, early fifties, and they're living by candlelight and oil lamps. Shocking. Uh, yeah, and c- cooking in a basically an open fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we f- we forget that that sort of gets scrubbed from the collective memory. Yeah, yeah abs- absolutely. So do you think that kind of tendency to look at the past, do you think it can be a double-edged sword or is it a point of strength in Glasgow? Uh, it's it's a bit of both. Uh, you know, there's a danger of living in the past and not seeing the good in the present and the hope for a better future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we have to obviously learn from our past mistakes, which is something Glasgow actually hasn't been very good at. We seem mm-hmm. to make mm-hmm. the same mistakes every 20 to 30 years. Yeah. Uh, but, the, I mean, the city, as a city, has actually a very short memory. You know, I mean, while myself and generations older than me all revered the Apollo, mm-hmm. uh, the old Green's Playhouse, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and think of it as this, you know, sort of dream gig venue, most folk under 40, although they've heard of the Apollo, they probably couldn't even tell you where it was in the city mm-hmm. because it's you know, it's been erased. It's been erased yeah. completely. Yes. Uh, and in truth, the Apollo itself was actually a bit of a dump. But, <laughs> you, but you, once once you were in, you didn't notice that because once you, once you were in this darkened space... Yep, that's it. You were focused on the band. You were focused <laughs> on the band. Uh, I mean, there's, there's stories about the, the dressing rooms at the back mm-hmm. of the Apollo in its latter days, but it was basically you know, a series of plastic buckets to catch the rain. And mm-hmm. you could actually stand in the main dressing room and see out through the roof because you know, so little money had been spent on it. Right. Shocking. So uh, what, what do you do with all the, the memories that people share with you on Lost Glasgow? Uh, do you, do you catalogue them in any way or do you just enjoy them? Uh, do, you, do, you, do you find any of that emotionally draining? I don't. I don't find it emotionally draining. What what it can be. I mean, Lost Glasgow came about by by pure happenstance. Uh, I was just getting ready to spit spit the dummy at the Glasgow Herald in the Evening Times. But for fourteen years, I'd written the Daily Memories page in the Evening Times, so I, I, you know, I was well used to dealing with the the, the picture archive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I discovered a site that had been going for a couple of years called Lost Edinburgh, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was really, really good in doing social media and memory and history in a really interesting and new way. And then all of a sudden, I found Lost Glasgow. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think it was quite as good as Lost Edinburgh. So one night after perhaps two bottles of wine, I... Uh, I emailed the Lost Glasgow page and said, look, I think this is a really good idea, but I think you should be doing it more like Lost Edinburgh. Have a look at their site. Uh, and woke up in the morning and, of course, here's an email back saying, actually, we are Lost Edinburgh, but we don't know Glasgow that well. Do you, do, do you want... Do you, oh, that's, that's too good. Do you want to come on board and be one of the admins and of course within about six within about six months I was I was doing everything on Lost Glasgow. I, and I originally thought I'd have you know, maybe ten thousands architecture history mm-hmm. geeks mm-hmm. like myself on the site, but it's it's just growing arms and legs. 
Uh, and that's, I mean, you're asking, is it emotionally draining? Well, no, but I mean, it can be exhausting. Right. Because uh, some, some, the fact that, you know, most of the time I'm doing a, a nine-to-five job, a real, a real job. Uh, but at the same time, every day I'm looking about for something that I think I can hang a, hang a Lost Glasgow post on. Yes. So you, you've constantly got your your, your antenna doing that, uh, hoping to pick something up. I mean, t- t- today was easy. Today's the solstice. Well, the Sight Hill Standing Stones. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. And today is also Ray Davis from the Kinks. 77th birthday, brilliant. The, the Kinks recorded a live album at the Kelvin Hall in 67. There's a picture. There's a cover of the album. And strangely enough, I saw the Kinks in 1980 at the Apollo. Mm-hmm. Uh, there you play, go. Playing playing to a half-empty Apollo, and it's still one of the best gigs I've ever been at in my life. Brilliant. So what's the best way to save these memories and past experiences that are linked to specific areas and buildings in Glasgow? Uh, I mean, obviously, Lost Glasgow sort of takes a sort of scattergun approach to the whole city, but there's there's so many other good wee local sites. I come for Govan. There's a good Denison site. Mm-hmm. Uh, you practice. It's that sort of usual thing in Glasgow. Glasgow itself is a nebulous concept. Mm-hmm. Gla- mm-hmm. Glasgow is made up of small villages. And communities, yeah, absolutely, yeah, uh, and it's only when they all come together that we're Glasgow. But for mm-hmm. the most part, people, if if you meet a Glasgow person on holiday and you ask them where they come from, they don't say they come from Glasgow. They say, "I come from Mary Hill," yeah. or "I come from Partick." Yes, yeah, or, yeah. I, yeah, I come from Cardonald, or I, yeah, I come from Springburn. Yeah, because as soon as you open your mouth, you already know that they come from Glasgow, but you want to know. And they don't identify, yeah. If an Englishman asked them where they came from, they'd say, I come from Glasgow. But yes. a fellow a fellow Glaswegian asked them that question and they immediately drill down and say, where mm-hmm. in Glasgow mm-hmm. they come from? Because it's that sort of concept of locality uh, that's so important. Yeah, very, very much. Okay, first loaded question for you. What was your best concert and your best dance in Glasgow? When and why? Oh, it'd have to be those early, early experiences, you know, the, the first mm-hmm. experiences. Uh, I remember aged about 14, being spectacularly thrilled uh, to secure a ticket to the second row of the stalls to see the jam play at the Apollo. Oh, wow. Uh, and at that point, the jam were just the world to me. Uh, but of course, because I'd never previously been to the Apollo, uh, I didn't realise that in the second row of the stalls, all I'd be able to see was the 14-foot stage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and very, very luckily, yeah, perhaps yeah, twice in a song, Paul Weller would come right to the lip of the stage and I'd see mm-hmm. the very top of his haircut. <laughs> I, couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't see the band at all. Uh, and eventually, about halfway through it, I realised the bouncers weren't paying much attention. So basically legged it to the back of the stalls right. uh, from, from where I could actually see the band on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, down, down in the, the front stalls, you were basically just staring at a 14-foot wall, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which came as a bit of a disappointment. And again, uh, I'm trying to think, other great gig, I think it would be The Simple Minds. And again, that mm-hmm. would be about 19... 
80 or 81. Uh, and they'd been out in America recording uh, Sons and Fascination and Sisters right. Feeli- Sister Feelings Call, right. a sort of double album. Uh, and they came back to Glasgow and played one night at Tiffany's, the old mm-hmm. Carnival, mm-hmm. in the week between Christmas and New Year. Uh, and it was like stepping into another world because the Simple Minds mm-hmm. had changed mm-hmm. musically yeah. since we'd last seen them, you know, maybe yes. yeah, eight yeah. or ten months previously. Yeah. And it was like they touched down from another planet. Uh-huh. Uh, and as soon as they started playing I Travel, that sprung Canadian maple dance floor in Tiffany's. Right. I remember you simply couldn't stand. If you tried to stand still on it, you were physically bounced because the whole floor <laughs> was moving up and down by about two or three right, inches. Right, wow. As the crowd just went absolutely berserk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I think it was... I think it must have been possibly U2's second tour to Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, yeah, because Simple Minds and U2 were quite close at one point. Mm-hmm. And went, went and saw them. This was before they did really any big hits or anything. It was before October had come out. So right. be between the Boy album and the October album mm-hmm. uh, and went to see them at Tiffany's. And the venue was half empty. Right. You I mean it was it was genuinely half empty, a Sunday night, a freeze. I remember it was a freezing cold Sunday night in October, uh, and I mainly remember that because Bono, the crowd that were there, went absolutely daft for the band, right? Uh, and Bono was coming out on stage throwing buckets of water over us at the front <laughs> of the stage, which which was fine when we were all hot and sweaty and pogoing lunatics. But then you, you step out onto Sucky Hall Street in, a, in, a, in October and everyone's <laughs> bloody hell. We're soaked to the skin and freezing to death <laughs> and all having to shiver up the road to jump in buses to get home. Uh, so that, that that would be the sort of gig memories. And again, okay. the, the earliest sort of clubbing memories, mm-hmm. being sort of 16 and managing to get into, again, my Maestro's in Scott Street. Right. Uh, or the very, very early days of the Archies and the Sub Club, mm-hmm. where it was, it was just it was something completely new, something that you yeah. hadn't experienced yeah, yeah, yeah. before. Yes, uh, particularly the Archies. Oh, the Archies! Uh, I mean, amazing. I, I think the closure of the Archies as a, not so much as a music venue because I never really thought it particularly worked well as a music venue, but the closure of the Archies as a a club venue, I think, has been one of the biggest losses to Glasgow in the last. 10, yeah, 15 years. Yep, yep. Uh, completely agree was, with you on that one. It was an absolutely unique space. Mm, very uh, much. And I had some of the best nights of my life in there. Uh, I won't say I won't say why there were some of the best nights. <laughs> <laughs> Too much information. <laughs> uh, but it was it, it was that feeling of collectivity yes. of yeah, yeah. all Glasgow being yep. there, being yeah. in the moment, and yeah, that very much. sweaty, bug-eyed wide exuberance of putting your arms around strangers and just, I mean, just really going for it. (laughs) Okay, final question for you, and it's another loaded one. What is your favourite building in Glasgow and why? And what would it tell you if it's Worlds Could Talk? It's a strange one because when I originally had a look at that question, I was was thinking of club venues and music Uh venues. and then it, it struck me, I think my favourite building in Glasgow is actually Central Station. 
Right, okay. I mean, it's good it's, choice. It's Glasgow's great glazed mm. living room. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they used to famously say that if you sat in the the front tables, uh, and I'm trying to remember the name of the, the famous cafe in Venice, right in St. Mark's Square, they said if you sat there for a year, you would meet everyone who had ever been in your life walking past. But that, that central station, you stand in central station for more than 15 minutes and you invariably bump into somebody, whether it's somebody you saw last week, last year, or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's this wonderful passing place of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I say, it's this like, a great glazed living room. Uh, and the fact that that's been going on since the 1870s, you, everyone who come, came to Glasgow passes through that space or meets in that space you know, whether it, you know, historically it was the, the shell that everyone used to meet at, now it's under the clock. But yep. all those stories through love, first meetings, goodbyes and hellos, through wartime, everything is embedded mm. in that concourse mm-hmm. space mm-hmm. in Central. And I, 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 I was in it just the other week. It was one of the first trips back into the city centre. I mean, you should, Used to be that I'd be going through Central twice a day. Yeah, same same here. Uh, I really miss it. Yeah, and I was I was standing standing in the space wait, waiting for my my train to come up on the board, and I was having a look about, and I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful, even if just once, one night after all the trains have been put to bed, to turn that Central Concourse space into a club space. Mm. Or a gig space, mm-hmm, and have mm-hmm. thousands of people dancing in the concourse of cent- the main concourse of Central Station. I would be. I mean, I, I realise the safety implications and all the rest <laughs> of it, uh, but it's just such a wonderful space to be in. You know, cavernous and beautiful. Yeah, I'd, I'd say. Yeah, like likewise, it's probably my favourite interior in Glasgow, just because yeah. it's like the, the big trusses, all that glass, the kind of the feel of it, and all the people passing through, the busyness of it. I absolutely love it because you know you're in a big city when you're in that space. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it never fails to thrill me. I mean, I even when I when I didn't used to get the train into Glasgow, I used to get the bus in. But I would always get off the bus a couple of stops early in Oswald Street, uh, and then cut in at the low level entrance to Central, literally just to come up the escalator into that space into the central space because every day it thrilled me. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Abs- absolutely. It, re- it really does. There was, um, I'm trying to, re- I'm struggling to remember his name now, but it was an American architectural historian who was talking about when um, uh, Penn Street Station was demolished in Manhattan and replaced mm. by kind of Madison Square Gardens with the station tucked underneath. And it was how you, you know, you used to come into the city like a god, but now you're scurrying like a rat. And um, <laughs> which is, it was a great quote. And it was, somebody was debating with me the difference between living in the West End and living in the South Side. And it was this, well, with the South Side, I come into Central Station every day and, you know, I come into the city like a god. You yeah. come, in on, the, you come yeah. in on the subway. It's like you're scurrying in like a rat. So, exactly. you know, this, this is the joy of the South Side. You get to pass through Central Station twice a day. If those walls could talk, they would tell the story of the last 150 years plus of Glasgow mm. from you know, the arrival of steam trains into the centre of the city to departing soldiers to returning wounded and 
dead soldiers. But it's also it's also a happy space. It's it's where people met and first dates. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's I mean what one of the most moving things I experienced and it was a couple of years ago uh, for Remembrance Day mm-hmm. and I'm trying to remember the name of the artist who put the idea together and I came up the escalator into Central Station mm-hmm. as I did every morning and here were soldiers dressed in First World War costume right, simply standing about on the platforms mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not speaking to anyone right. if you if you approached them and tried to speak to them Mm-hmm. They would simply hand you a piece of paper with the name and the date of birth and the date of death of the soldier that they represented. And it was the most moving Absolutely. experience. How, how poignant. It was positive, what's positively ghostly. Mm. Uh, and they, they popped up in various points around the city during the day, mm-hmm. sat in the steps of the, the Gallery of Modern Art and mm-hmm. sang mm-hmm. Tipperary and all those First World War songs together. Right, right. And it was just... Heart stopping. I mean, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a man that's easily given to tears. Not many Glasgow men yeah, are. That, I don't think. That, but that's I mean, moving. I, I was just a bit in buckets. It just yeah, took me yeah. took me to pieces. Yeah, and absolutely. Then I thought of my own family history. You know, both both grandfathers, First World War veterans, but both fortunately made it safe home. Mm-hmm. But all the boys who didn't, all the Glasgow lads who didn't. But who ended up back at Central Station? 17,000 of them, you know? Yeah. 17,000 plus. So absolutely horrific. I mean, when you think about that, it's a population of Helensburg. Yeah. You know, just just gone over the space of four years. Absolutely yeah. shocking. Really uh, shocking. And it's, it's not just that they're gone, but that's 17,000 Glasgow women mm-hmm. bereft mm-hmm. of boyfriends. And all those- Husbands, all those families, dancing all, partners, <laughs> all those, all those futures lost. Yeah, yeah. all the, you know, all those possibilities lost as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which mm-hmm. it just, it just makes you realise just how absolutely poignant that space is. Um, yeah, one, yeah. One of the reasons why I love it so much too. I mean, I think, I think it's up in platform one. There's a plaque uh, that talks of you know all the all the arrivals and departures during the two mm. world wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is it's, you know, it's it, the, the very space just breathes history to me. Yeah, uh, and I just love it. It lifts my spirit every time I go through it. Indeed, likewise. Okay, Nori, thank you very much. That was a complete pleasure, as always, with you. So, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share, and don't forget to follow the hashtag if Glasgow's walls could talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was great, Nori. Thank you very much. No, that was fun. The following message was submitted by a member of the public. If you want to leave a message about your opinions, memories and thoughts about Glasgow's historic built environment, have a look at our website to find out how. The ABC was my favourite venue that was sadly destroyed when the School of Art went on fire. I don't remember the first act I saw there. Possibly real big fish. But it always had a good sound and a good atmosphere, and the giant disco ball made sure the lighting was always great. I felt as if a friend had died when it was destroyed, but I feel privileged to have experienced so many good nights there. Glasgow City Heritage Trust is an independent charity and grant funder that promotes the understanding, appreciation and conservation of Glasgow's historic built environment. Want to know more? Have a look at our website at glasgowheritage.org.uk and follow us on social media at Glasgow Heritage. This podcast was produced by Inner Ear for Glasgow City Heritage Trust.
This podcast is kindly sponsored by the National Trust for Scotland and supported by Tunnex.